hey, um, can you keep a secret? Because <laughs> there's something I'm, I'm not supposed to say this, at least not until next weekend. But if you guys can keep a secret, I just, I've been sitting on this for like three weeks. I'm so pumped. Can, can you keep a secret? Sure. Okay, and online, can, can you keep a secret? I, I hope so. Um, so <clears throat> seriously, this is highly confidential. And I'm not supposed to say anything until August 6th. But on July 6th, um, I received this fax, and, and quite frankly, I didn't know that we still had a fax machine. Um, but I received this fax from a really nice man. His name is David Gardner uh, from Gardner & Associates in Toronto, uh, Canada. And, um, and he told me about Dr. Marcus Marvel. I, I didn't know we had relatives in Canada, but apparently on my dad's side, somehow they went from Oklahoma to Canada. But unfortunately, Dr. Marvel... Um, Sometime the last two, he didn't have an exact date, but he said about two years ago, died of COVID, which, I mean, I never met him, but I feel bad for his family. Well, I am his family. Well, anyway, <clears throat> he left a permanent life insurance policy with the value of, get this, $11,550,300. And this gentleman, um, David, nice man, um, he said he would help me claim that money. And, and here's the, and, and he said, he said one of his requirements is that we would give 10% of it away. So he, he's probably like a Christian because that's like tithing and, and that he and I would share the other 90% and he assured me it's 100% risk-free. So I'm so pumped about this. And I know he said it could take up to 30 days. That's why I've got until the six and I'm not supposed to say anything, but just in case you see me drive in next weekend in something a little different. You'll know why. Now, I know, I know. And I know what some of you are thinking. Right now you're thinking, lucky. <laughs> you're thinking our pastor is truly blessed of God. Amen. <laughs> and some of you are thinking, you idiot. Don't be a fool. Don't give him your routing number. Don't give him your social security. If you believe this and you act on it, it will ruin your life. Well, we'll just see, won't we? <laughs> hey, thanks for letting me share that out. You know, next week, it's, it's okay. I am glad that you're here today. Those of you here in the room, those of you online, so glad that you're with us. We're in this series for the summer looking at a letter that Paul wrote to the church in, in Colossae, in this book of Colossians. And Paul apparently heard from a guy named Epiphras that this church had received some facts, some false facts. Some facts that if they believed them and if they acted on them, it would ruin their life. It would derail, it would destroy this Christ-centered, grace-given, finished work of Christ for them and the ongoing of work of God in them. And so he writes them this letter. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 4, he says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. He says, you've been receiving some facts that sound appealing. I mean, fine sounding arguments. It, it, it makes sense. It, it, it seems to sound spiritual and it seems right. And if you've been with us in this series, he doesn't specifically say what the false facts are, what the, what the errant teaching is, but it's very possible as you see, as he confronts some of this, that there was some early Gnostic thinking that had made its way in. There was some Jewish legalism. There was some Eastern mysticism, possibly even some spiritism and some just very pagan humanism. And he says, it all sounds really good. 
And it sounds convincing and it even sounds appealing. But if you believe it and if you act on it, it's going to be disastrous. When I was thinking about his telling them this, I was thinking about a scene from a movie that 20 some years old, I don't know if you remember in the probably late 90s, early 2000s, a movie called A Bug's Life. It was an animated movie. A Bug's Life is kind of a real cute movie. But there's a scene in A Bug's Life where these two mosquitoes are flying along and one of them, Harry, he notices this blue light. And his buddy sees what he notices and, he, and he's realizing what's going to happen. He says, no, no, Harry, Harry, no, don't look at the light. And Harry's just transfixed. He says, I can't help it. It's so beautiful. And zap, it gets him. <laughs> Some of you are like feeling bad for the mosquito. <laughs> he tried to warn him. And when Paul writes this letter, it's like, it's like a warning of a zapper. It's like, don't listen to these things, these philosophies that are going to draw you in, but they'll zap the, the work of God in your life. Don't listen to these rules and regulations they're trying to get you to get a part of and, and to conform to. It all sounds so spiritual, but it will zap the grace of God in your life. All these things, don't do it. Don't go towards that, that, that compelling argument that you're hearing. It's a zapper. Now today, we're going to finish up Colossians chapter 2. As I mentioned last week, we spent a long time in Colossians 1. We're going to have to fly through the rest of this letter. I'm going to finish up Colossians chapter 2 today. So if you have your Bible or your phone, tablet, device, you want to turn there, Colossians chapter 2, there's a lot of stuff I'm going to have to just skip over. I hope that you'll read this on your own, and maybe it will fill in some of the, some of the blanks or the holes that are left in my sermon uh, for you, or, or at least fill it out a little bit more. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. If you were with us last week, Paul writes to them and he says, just as you have received Christ Jesus, your Lord, continue to live in him. And some of you will remember this. He says, here's how you're going to continue to live in him, rooted, built up and strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing. All right. For some of you remember that. The rest of you are looking around saying, what freaks? Yes, we are. But you're strengthened and built up in your faith and you're overflowing with thankfulness. And then he writes, verse eight, he writes this, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. I find it interesting that Paul uses this word captive. This picture, where's Paul? Paul's in Rome. Paul's arrested in Rome. Paul's not allowed to leave Rome. Paul's actually a captive. He, he's a prisoner, as it were, in, in a house arrest, but he's a prisoner. He's a captive in Rome. And he says, there's something worse than my captivity there's a greater captivity when your mind and your spirit is captured. And he says, don't let anyone draw you into that cell. Don't let anyone take you captive in this hollow and deceptive philosophy. Now, I'm going to ask a question. When you hear the words hollow and deceptive, hollow and deceptive, am I the only one that thinks about chocolate Easter bunnies? <laughs> That's the first thought that comes to my mind, hollow and deceptive. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You get that beautiful gold foil wrapped rabbit and it says it's chocolate and you're so just drawn in by the beauty of the gold and you take the foil off and you start nibbling on the ear, not in a romantic way, but more in a consuming way. You nibble on the ears and then about the time you get to his eyebrows, you're going, hey, wait a minute. I've been deceived. This thing's hollow. You can cave his whole face in. It's like this is... It overpromised and underdelivered. And he says, there's some philosophies that are like a chocolate Easter bunny. It's going to sound good. It's going to start off okay, but it's hollow and it's deceptive. It will overpromise and underdeliver. And there's nothing more frustrating 
than when something overpromises and underdelivers. As long as I'm getting this chocolate Easter thing off of my chest, I've got something else that, that bothers me as well in kind of that same deal. It's when there's an aromatic overpromising and underdelivering. Under delivering. And there are three things in my life that aromatically, to me, overpromise and underdeliver. And what, one of them, some of you are going to hate me for. One of the things is waffle cones. Now, don't get me wrong. I'll take a waffle cone over a sugar cone any day of the week. But when they're making waffle cones, they smell amazing and they taste okay. It like overpromises. Like, it, I mean, it's like a blue, like waffle cone. And then it's like, eh, that wasn't so great. The other one, another one is garlic fries at T-Mobile Park. I mean, the smell of those garlic fries just kind of wafting through the rafters of the corridor there and the ballpark, and you're just like, that smells amazing. And then you get this pile, and it's like, eh, it's okay. And then this one that some of you are going to hate me on is coffee. <laughs> coffee smells amazing, but it tastes like the liquefied hell. I mean, I would just as soon drink battery acid. Coffee tastes wretched. It is awful. It is disgusting. It is deplorable. I don't see how you can drink that. It smells great. It overpromises and underdelivers. And Paul comes along and says, there's some philosophies that are going to overpromise, but they're going to underdeliver. They're hollow. They're deceptive. Don't be drawn into them. And he says, this is why. This is why. He says, these hollow and deceptive philosophies, which depend on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. It sounds good, but it's not solid. It's going to leave you frustrated because even if it's been going on traditionally for hundreds of years, if it's man-made, it will not deliver. And if it's of this world, it's not what you're looking for in your spiritual realm. And then he comes back to this, this one-track message. We've said it all the way through. We'll see it all the way through. This one-track message. It's based on human tradition or, or the world's philosophies, all these things, instead of Christ. And what he says over and over again is the centrality of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. And here in the remainder of chapter 2, he's very clear about the sufficiency of Christ, that Christ is enough. That Christ alone, more than any of the traditions, Christ alone, more than anything the world has to offer, offer Christ alone is the one that will not disappoint, is, not, is the one that will not overpromise and underdeliver. It's the sufficiency of Christ. Some of us grew up singing about the sufficiency of Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground, he says, is sinking sand. Sometimes we'll sing that song, in Christ alone. It's Christ, the sufficiency of Christ. There's a, a, a relatively new song, I think probably in the last year or so, that we've been singing called Gyra. And there's this little, little uh, section of that song. It's not even the, the bridge or the, or the verse or the chorus. It's just this little section where these words are, forever enough, always enough, more than enough. That's Christ. He alone is forever enough. He is always enough. And he is more 
than enough. There's a math equation that has been used with this passage of Scripture for years and years. It's not original to me, but it's been used for years. And it's this math equation that says Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And what he's trying to help them understand is don't add to what Jesus has already done. It's not Jesus plus this philosophy. It's not Jesus plus, as you'll see in this passage, plus circumcision. It's not Jesus plus the Old Testament laws. It's not Jesus plus the angels. It's not Jesus plus anything. Jesus plus nothing is forever enough, always enough, more than enough. It's everything. Tim Keller said this. He said, we can never move on from the gospel to something more. We never can and we never need to. All that can be done and all that needs to be done was done in Jesus Christ. Verse 9, he says this, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now, if you've been with us in the series, you know that this phrase, this line is directly confronting the Gnostic thought that there's material and there's spiritual and one is evil, material stuff is bad and spiritual stuff is good. So Jesus could not have been God and man. So it's confronting the Gnostic thought there. But for us, this is important because it's revealing again who Jesus is. And I want to make sure that we're clear around here. That we don't believe that Jesus is just a glorified angel. We don't believe that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer. We don't believe that Jesus is a created being. We believe that Jesus is God. The deity in all his fullness dwells in Jesus. Jesus would say this, I and the Father are one. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. And throughout scripture, earlier in this uh, Colossians chapter one, in the passage that Pastor Kip preached, it talked about how, how Christ is the image of the invisible God. This is, we can see, it's the personification of God. In John chapter one, John writes, in the beginning was the word, Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In Philippians chapter two, it says our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He's in his very essence, in his very being. He is divine. He is God. In Hebrews chapter one, it says that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Jesus isn't just a mini me of the father. Jesus isn't just an avatar of the father. And whether you agree with us or not, here at Cornwall Church, on the authority of God's word, We stand on this truth. Jesus Christ is God, the eternal one. He is God. And he says all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. This is and, and, and. And it's even better for us. He goes on, he says, and you have been given fullness in Christ. All of God's fullness, you could never ask more than all of God's fullness in Christ, and our fullness is found being in Christ. This is how we dwell. This is our reality. This is who we are, that that we have to decide, are we going to go with these hollow, deceptive philosophies or the fullness of Christ? One's going to disappoint you. One's going to deliver. One will fulfill. One will frustrate you. 
And he does not want them or us to be drawn away from this central truth that all of God in Christ, us in Christ, is all that we need. And he says, oh, and, and, and just in case you're wondering, we've been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. He's not one amongst equals of authorities and powers in this world. Again, in that, that Colossians 1 passage that Pastor Kip preached on, it just talks about how, how he's created all things. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is over all. He is forever enough, always enough, more than enough. Now, at this point, he, he goes on, and, and there's some point, part that I'm going to skip over, not because of, of the subject matter, which you'll think it is because I'm going to tell you what it was, but more for time. He, he goes into this whole thing about circumcision. That's not why I'm skipping over it. Some of you are saying, thank you for skipping over it. I'm not. What he's saying is this, because the circumcision for the Jewish people was a sign that they were in a right standing with God, that they were clean, that they were part of the family. And what he says is, listen, we need more than an operation on the flesh. We need a transformation on the heart. And any rabbi could do a circumcision on a little boy, but only Jesus can transform a heart. He says, that's what we need. And then he uses this picture of baptism, like we've been buried with Christ in his death, but we've been raised in the resurrection with Christ. And he makes it very clear, abundantly clear, our position in Christ and our provision with Christ. That our position in Christ is that we are a part of the family of God. We are in a right standing with the heavenly father. We are one. Because we've been adopted in, we are sons and daughters of our heavenly father because we're a part of the kingdom. We are princes and princesses of the most high king. And that's our standing, but not because we followed these rules or we had this operation or we're doing these things. It's because of Christ. He's the one that provides all of this because he's forever enough and he's always enough and he's more than enough. We don't need anything else. And, and throughout, he, he gives this contrast. We were dead, but now we're alive. We were condemned, but now we're forgiven. We were defeated, but now we're victorious. I jump downward to verse 13. Verse 13, he says this. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, that's this whole idea of being unredeemed, unclean. God made you alive with Christ. Now, this is going to strike you as profound, but when you're dead, there's not a lot you can do for yourself. And he says, spiritually, you were dead, and in that condition, you were powerless to fix anything, including yourself. You were dead in your sins, but God, God raised you from the dead. He's the one that brought you back to life. Just as he resurrected Christ from the dead, he resurrects us from the dead, and we have our life in him. And, and he says, and he forgave us all our sins, all our sins. If, if I gave you a homework assignment to go home this week and list from your whole life all your sins, 
like starting when you were a little kid, when you stole that cookie and you told your mom you didn't, when you stayed up past 8.30 and with the flashlight under the cover, I know. If you were to list all your sins, it would, I'm just, okay, I can't speak for you. Mine wouldn't be a list. There, there'd be a file folder. There would be a file cabinet. And I think you would agree that you would have the same. And it says he forgives us all our sins. Sometimes we get to thinking, well, I've sinned too deeply. I've gone too far. I've done too often. He says, no, no, no. All your sins, they're forgiven. See, all of our sins, that file cabinet that has all my sins, that stands against me. It, it, it condemns me. It points and says he's guilty, and it's absolutely correct. And you have the law of God, and all the times that I've broken it, I don't have a chance with this file cabinet, with this law, and any prosecutor that wants to put me on trial has a very tight case against me. Look what he says about this. It says in verse 14, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Some of us have been raised in church, and we've heard this, Jesus was crucified for our sins, and that's true, and it's great. But he's taken away, nailing it to the cross. Let me give you another perspective on this that I read in a commentary that I'd never thought of or heard before. And it's this idea that in this passage, Paul is, yes, talking about the crucifixion and, and what happened on the cross. But what is it that stands against us? I mean, our sin con condemns us, but what is it that stands against us? It's the law. And you read this in Romans where Paul says, listen, the law is powerless to change anybody. The law is powerless to make you righteous. What the law does is it points out how sinful you actually are. So it's the law that stands against us. In Roman custom, when someone was crucified, they would take whatever the sin, whatever the crime, whatever the, 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 the action that causes crucifixion, they would write that and they would nail it above the head of the one who's crucified. So the man hanging there on the cross might say, murderer. So you know, that's, he's only known by his worst you know, crime or sin. And it's saying this is what caused him to be on the cross. Or maybe, you know, he, he was um, a, a rebel or, or, or whatever it might be. Well, some of you are familiar that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, they put the crime as king of the Jews. But what this commentator said is that what Paul's getting at here is, is not just what Jesus did on the cross, which is true. But when Jesus hangs on the cross, Jesus, the only one who could or ever did fully keep the law, that's what nailed above his head is the law. That he nails the law to the cross. Because while Jesus kept the law, none of us can. So what he does on the cross is he pays the penalty for all the people who have not been able to keep the law, which is us. And at that point, we decide, are we going to try to follow the law and depend on ourselves for our salvation? 
Or are we going to follow Christ and depend on what he did on the cross for our salvation? And then this next verse, there's, there's so much. Uh, we, we don't even have the time to go into all this in verse 15. But he says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Triumphing over them by the cross. Triumphing over them by the cross. Triumph and cross don't go together. I mean, the cross was a, it was this torture device. I mean, yeah, it was to kill people, but it was to do it in the most inhumane, painful way. The word excruciating literally means out of the cross. The Romans had perfected this torture device called the cross so that there was humiliation as a man hanging there naked, completely humiliated, known for his worst crime or sin, and he's gasping for air while the birds peck the flesh out of his eyes and ears and stuff, and it could take days for him to die. There's no triumph in that. And not only was it torture, but, but it, was the, it was meant to send a message for anyone who could see it, who could hear it, who could smell it. You do what this guy did, that's where you're going to be. And there was terror that went with this. And yet, it talks about Jesus triumphing over them. By the cross. Well, well, this is kind of interesting. Because for the Romans, the cross was a demonstration of cruelty. But for Jesus, it was a demonstration of love. For the Romans, the cross was, was meant for the guilty. But in Jesus... The cross is the means to forgiveness. For the Romans, the cross would bring shame, suffering. But in Jesus, the cross brings salvation. For the Romans, the cross was this instrument of death. But in Jesus, the cross became the pathway to life. For the Romans, the cross was the ultimate and final defeat. But with Jesus, the cross was the ultimate and final victory. It's the triumph of the cross that once was once was a cross was was terrified. Now in Jesus, it's glorified. Jesus is hanging on the cross. And he says three words. It is finished. And a lot of people agreed with him. The religious leaders, they were like, yes, we've been working on this one for a couple years. It is finished. He's done. For the Romans, it's like, finally, before sunset, good. This, this, this difficulty with this Jesus and the, and the Jews, it, it's finished. All of hell and the minions of, the, of, of, of Satan, they're saying, it is finished. They're high-fiving. It is finished. And three days later, they said three different words. That didn't work. <laughs> and Jesus said, that didn't work. Because the cross 
which was supposed to condemn and defeat is the cross of victory, glorification, salvation, redemption. In Genesis chapter 50, where Joseph says to his brothers, you meant this for evil, God meant it for good. In Romans, where it says that God can take the worst thing and turn it around for good. What a picture on the cross of that happening. It is finished. So in, in all that, with what Christ has done on the cross and his provision for us and who we are, Paul says in, in chapter two, don't let anyone judge you because of these things, because you have Christ and Christ is forever enough. He's always enough and he is more than enough. And don't let anyone try to disqualify you because you didn't do these things or you did these things because you have Christ and you know Christ. And he is forever enough and he is always enough and he is more than enough. And don't be pulled back into the old ways and the old rituals and the old rules and the old laws because you now have Christ. And Christ alone is forever enough and always enough and more than enough. And here's where I think he's, he's confronting some of the Jewish legalism, some of the law that they had been raised with, some of the Old Testament covenants and, and rituals and sacrifices. In verse 17, where he says this, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Paul gets this. I mean, he grew up, he was a Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the laws. He knew all of those and he says the old covenant, the Sinai covenant, and the, and the laws, and the Leviticus, and all those, those are all good. They're from God. But they were a shadow. They were, they were a glimpse. They were pointing towards something that would be greater. They were giving you kind of a, a preview. They were kind of an appetizer. They were a, a foreshadowing of the fulfillment that would come in Christ. Uh, let me try to illustrate it this way. Let's say, okay, it's summer. Let's say you want to take your family on a vacation. You decide, let's go to Leavenworth. Let's go to Leavenworth. So you get the little brochure on Leavenworth. And in the brochure on Leavenworth, there's all kinds of things in here. Different places to stay, different hotels, motels, lodges, campgrounds, all kinds of things. And you look through and you say, oh, we could stay there, we could stay there. Oh, this one's kind of cool looking, you know, and all this. So you look through and you get the hotels. Not only that, but it talks about the different festivals, the different times of year, what they have at Christmas, what they have in May, what they have in October, all these different festivals. And you decide which, which one you want to go to, one you want to experience. And then there's this whole list of restaurants. And you start thinking about where should we eat while we're there and get some schnitzel. And, and, and you're looking at all these restaurants and you're thinking, oh, let's go to that one or the kids will like this one. And then there's a whole section on the activities depending on, on what time of year you go. I mean, I mean there's, there's hiking and there's mountain biking and there's skateboarding and there's running and fishing and golfing and camping and climbing and, and horses and all of that. Or, or, or there's, there's snowmobiling and, and, and snowshoeing and sleigh rides and, and you're talking about all these activities that you're going to do. And, and then there's all these shopping, all the different places you can go shopping. Let's go check this out and look at this museum of all these nutcrackers and oh, the hats. We can go try on hats. And you put this all together and finally you get this together and it's all planned out and you go up to Leavenworth and as you get there, you say, come on kids, this is our, this is our vacation. And they say, yeah, that's, that's great. I think I'll just stay in the car and read the pamphlet. So, but we picked this hotel. Yeah, no, I know. I'll, I'll read about it in here. I, I, there's a picture of it. It's, it's real nice. But, but for dinner, we're going to go, yeah, 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 it all sounds good, yeah. 
I can read about it here. But, but the activities we're going to do, I mean, we plan these activities and we've scheduled them and it's going to be so great. Yeah, you guys enjoy that. I, 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 I'll just read this. And you just go through and all of this is planned, but they experience none of it. And Paul comes along and he says, don't settle for the brochure. He said, I get it. I was an expert in the brochure. Because the brochure pointed a, painted a picture of something that was even greater. I knew the brochure. I studied the brochure. I memorized the brochure. I loved the brochure. My life was wrapped around the brochure. And then I finally found what the brochure was talking about. And what does he say in Philippians 3? I consider the brochure rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And he's saying, don't go back to the brochure. Experience Jesus, the beauty of this one who is forever enough, always enough, more than enough. This is the centrality of the sufficiency of Christ. On Thursday this week, a lady called the church. A lady who's been a part of our church for years. And her husband, who's in his 80s, they've been married for over 60 years, is in his final days. And she said, Bob, is there any way you could just go and pray with him? We just want to be assured of his salvation, of his eternity. I said, sure. So my wife and I went up and talked with our friend. And then we went in to, to meet with this gentleman. And he's no longer eating and he's no longer drinking. He's in his final days. I'm not sure if he's alive this morning. But I got to sit down with him, and I got to just remind him of all the truth of God's word. That's not about, was I good enough? Did I fulfill enough? Did I follow the law well enough? It's about what Christ has done, and that God is his creator, and God is his sustainer, and God has followed him with goodness and mercy all the days of his life. And God wants to dwell with him forever in the house of the Lord. And it's not based on anything he's done. It's based completely on what Jesus has done. And I got to pray with this gentleman, read him some more scripture, reassure him of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this I know that he will spend eternity in heaven and I will see him again, not because of anything he has done, but only because of what Jesus has done. Because Jesus is forever enough and he's always enough and he's more than enough. So let's circle back to verse 13. When you were dead in your sins in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins.